God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph and the virgin's name, Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great. Be called son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule Jacob's house forever. No end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I've never slept with a man. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover over you. Therefore the child you bring to birth will be called Holy, Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son old as she is? Everyone called her barren and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing, you see, is impossible with God. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. Then the angel left her. Do you believe in angels? It's an important question because these stories are full of them. The two birth stories that we have of Jesus in Luke, part of which we just read now, and in Matthew, angels direct the story. They are the ones that move the story and the plot along. But are they just a literary device, something that we accept as sort of part of the story but not not a real thing? Well, I'm sort of inclined towards that myself, but because I'm a modern thinking person and these things are difficult to imagine and certainly difficult to prove, but I'm always reluctant to have any result that makes us look smarter than ancient people. They were sillier than us and naive. Given what we did in the 20th century and what we're doing now, it's really hard to maintain that, isn't it? So I'm I'm not keen on anything like that. But equally so, this idea that these mostly unseen beings who are all around me all the time and and are human-like in some form, but are superhuman and actually can impact and affect my life, I find very difficult to deal with. 
And yet here they are in this story. I don't want to be the plaything of the gods in that understanding that the Greeks seem to have. I don't want to have to try and persuade a supernatural being to bend to my small will. You know, the sorts of things that I worry about every day when there are so much bigger things to be dealt with if there was a supernatural creature who could do such a thing. The ancients dealt with spiritual beings without comment. They were as real and involved in the world as we see forces around us. We have a thing we call the market, which dominates our entire life. And if you are into ritual, you can go and listen to a stock market report, which is a ritualised version of our religion called the market. And we have priests who manage that and we have temples where that's all done. You know all that story. So we're not that different. They just had different manifestations. And they had angels who they saw as the emissaries of kings because kingdom was the best model they could come up with uh, in the time for managing life. And what was hoped for, of course, each time the king died and a new king came, that this one would be a good king. And you can read all through the Old Testament and in many other books of history of the ancient world the trepidation as one king fell off the perch and another one came. You just hoped to God, literally, that this one would be good. So here's one of these emissaries, one of these messengers, upsetting the life of a young woman, a girl, possibly if she was married at the same age as most young women were at the time, 12, 13 or 14. So what does she see? Well, according to Tanner, she doesn't actually see an, a person, a shape. She has an experience, she hears something. And it changes her, but it's not, it's not the same as, as, uh, for him, it's not the same as seeing you or I. John Dominic Crossan, who's a New Testament scholar, suggests that we could think about angels without dismissing them as fantasy or naivety of the ancients, as we could call them ultimate meaning radiantly personified. Ultimate meaning radiantly personified. Angels, in that sense, are not otherworldly supernatural observers. You, whenever I think of angels, I think of this film, the Vim Vendors film, uh, Wings of Desire. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the classic films of the 20th century. It's made in the late 80s. Um, and these angels uh, are wandering around Berlin um, both sort of interacting, but also unable to interact with humanity. They're watching human beings make messes of their lives and are dreadfully sad and unable to interact. But they're there and they, they're obvious and, and sometimes people get a glimpse of them. Other times they get a sense that there's sort of something around them, but they don't know what. It's a great film. You should watch it. But I don't think it's got anything to do with what Crossan is talking about. Angels, if he's right, are this personification of deep reality shaped into a moment that can be experienced. They're the personification of clear, unadulterated truth. So perhaps we could think of Mary as experiencing a moment of perfect clarity, 
of ultimate meaning and reality, the kind of moment that doesn't happen very often in a life, but when it does, things start to fall into place and make sense. The most translations say that Mary was much perplexed by these words of the angel and pondered what sort of greeting this could be, which sounds like, you know, a, a heroine in a Victorian novel, doesn't it? That's why I like to use the translation that we just read, the message translation. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind all of this. She was deeply troubled and confused by what she'd experienced. So the angel says to her, the personification of ultimate meaning, radiantly personified, if we take Crossan, don't be afraid. This is said over and over in the Gospels by Jesus himself, by angels to Mary and to the shepherds. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Why? Because ultimate reality a glimpse of the realness of our lives, of the importance of our lives and the unimportance of them, at the same time, can be really frightening. We see ourselves as we truly are. We can't hide behind the illusions that we've built about ourselves that we hope we're projecting well into the world. Those of us who've had to face a a serious life-threatening illness, suddenly everything takes on a different perspective. Those of us who, who are, have had to live with somebody that we love who's dying, suddenly everything has changed. We, what was so important last week is no longer of any interest to us at all. And things that we'd forgotten become vitally important. But it's the same true if we find ourselves being loved by someone unconditionally. We don't need to pretend to be the kind of person we hope everyone will think is okay. Because this person loves us regardless, which throws us off completely. Because we're not expecting that. We're not used to that. It's this idea of love unconditional that is a, an, a moment of truth, a moment of clarity, a moment of ultimate meaning. And sometimes we see it in other people, in just the way they do a certain thing, or the way they say something, or the way they don't do something. We see them full of contradictions, of course, just like us, but also full of wonder and grace. These are the moments. Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. I'm not so sure how keen she was on the surprise when she heard what it was. It's nearly Christmas. My grandchildren are going to get a bunch of surprises and they're already pretty sure that they're all going to be good. If they eat too much fruitcake or whatever else, their surprise won't be as good, but they're pretty sure. But Mary's in a different situation. The, the translations, some of the other translations say, um, Mary, you have found favour with God, as if, you know, she's been nice, not naughty, and, you know, we're checking the list twice and all of that. No, it's nothing to do with that. It really is the word surprise. The word actually is the same word, root word, as um, Archimedes uses when he says the word Eureka. I have found it, or better translated, it has found me. You know the story when you're in school, he's in the bath and he displaces the volume and I remember the story I can't remember 
the, the science behind it. But anyway, um, they, they, he's in the bath and he jumps out of the bath and apparently runs down the street naked saying, I found it. And I'm sure other people found something too. But um, it had come to him. It's a surprise that surprised him. He, so it's a sort of half discovering it and half being discovered by it. This is the word behind Mary. God has a surprise for you. She's surprised by a moment of truth, a gift of clarity and insight into her life and its purpose, a moment when it all comes together. And what is that truth? Well, in the ancient world, it it is that she will fulfil her destiny. She will be fully who she is meant to be. And in the ancient world, a young woman's full destiny is to be a mother. Now, you know, we're not happy to live with that today. That's too restricting. But it wasn't nothing. It wasn't nothing to be able to birth, give birth to the next generation so that the clan would survive, so that the tribe would keep going. We have led us all through history attesting to the pain and despair of women who are unable to get pregnant or who get pregnant and are unable to give birth to a live child. In all cultures, we have these records where they're written of just despair The idea of barrenness, just the word, the despair that can be behind that. It's not nothing to be able to fulfill your purpose and your destiny. And while, as I say, we're not so keen on that as the entire purpose and meaning of a woman's life, that just doesn't make sense to us at all. It did then. In fact... The story, the next story we have is the story of Elizabeth who gives birth to John the Baptist, who's supposedly um, uh, Mary's aunt and the two boys will be cousins. Uh, It says that her neighbours and relatives, seeing that God had overwhelmed her with mercy, she was aged and she was able to be pregnant, celebrated with her. She was able to fulfil after many long years the purpose and meaning of her life. And if we extend that, extend that out to us, <coughs> what do we do? What does it mean for us to have our true meaning and purpose? What does it mean for us to have um, the radiant meaning of, the, of, of, of truth personified to us where we have that moment, where we begin to experience what our moment of truth is? Zechariah, who's in the story just before this one, and if you read these together, they're almost identical. Elizabeth gets pregnant, Mary gets pregnant. Zechariah gets a vision from the angel, Mary gets a vision from the angel. The problem is that Zechariah doesn't accept it. He doesn't believe that he is experiencing a moment of ultimate meaning radiantly personified. So he's struck dumb. And he can't talk. He has nothing to say. He has no way of participating in the meaning of his life. He's just struck dumb. And you meet people like this all the time. People who you're in conversation with. And it's not a real conversation. It's a sort of a a collection of aphorisms that we sort of launch at each other. It's not a deep conversation. You, You can be in conversation with somebody for half an hour and leave with no sense of who they are as a person. They've learnt that their only way to be in the world is to just babble about the weather 
I'm sure that's important sometimes. Or to babble about uh, the things they saw on television. Sure, that's really important sometimes too, but if it, all it is is just a thing that you say in order to sort of pretend to be engaged in the world, you might as well be struck dumb because you're avoiding the true moment at all costs. Now, I don't know what the true purpose of your life is. We don't live in a very stratified culture where the true purpose of a woman's life was to have children, a true purpose of a man's life was to do what his dad did and keep going. We don't live in that culture anymore and that's got great strengths and some weaknesses in it because we have to figure it out for ourselves. We have to reinvent our lives from the ground up each time a new person turns up. Let me just quote you this one thing to finish. It comes from what's called the Gospel of Thomas and it's purported to be a a, a list of sayings that Jesus said. It's very ancient. It never made it into the uh, canon of the the scriptures, so the the books that were agreed by the church in the 2nd and 4th century that should have been in, in in the Bible. It was left out and people have disputed it ever since and it's strange in places because we're used to reading Jesus speaking as he does in the four Gospels and he speaks differently here. It's much more pithy, much more, uh, much more condensed. And you can take it, take it or leave it for yourself. But here's the one bit that I think has been something I've carried with me for a long time, trying to figure out what this moment of reality might be for my life. What would be, to use the metaphor that the story is all about, a birth What is coming to birth in me? So I'll leave it with you. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says this. If you bring forth that which is within you, it will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, it will destroy you. If you bring forth that which is within you, It will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, it will destroy you. So be it.